Our art is not separate from God because all of art is expressing some human condition. And you can't speak of the human condition without talking about God, even if it's not in that sort of language. And I think that my art, which is poetry and writing, causes me to deeply reflect on what God is, where God is, how God is. Once I remove this Western way of thinking about God, which is incredibly ingrained into me, I find that the possibility to know God and to be with God is most alive when I'm creating art. You're listening to the Theopoetics Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Burnett, and my conversation today is with Carolina Hinojosa Cisneros. Carolina is a Tejana, Chicana, and Mujerista writer and poet. Her chapbook, Becoming Costotl, was published by Flower Song Books. She is the 2019 recipient of the 2019 Hubem Alves Award in Theopoetics. In this episode, Catalina and I discuss her ancestral rootedness as an author and poet. We explore her theopoetic lens as a frame for the creative task and thinking about God, the ways in which embodiment and decolonization play a role in her language and academic work, and her wisdom about drawing upon family, food, land, and culture to help heal the world. The second half of this episode is also a recording from last year's Theopoetics Conference. And hey, a quick announcement, as this is our season one finale episode. ARC is once again hosting its Theopoetics Conference, and this year it is in Chicago from March 20th through the 21st. The conference is an event for artists, activists, and people of faith to come together to discuss the ways creative and spiritual practices can come together in the work for a more just world. More information is available at theopoeticsconference.org. And listeners can use the code APOETICSOF for 10% off their registration costs. We will be back later this year. Thanks again for listening to the Theopoetics Podcast. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of the Theopoetics Podcast. Um, I've got a wonderful guest with me today. We've got Carolina Hinojosa Cisneros with us, who uh, is a wonderful essayist and poet, and she actually won the Hubem Alves Award this past year in Theopoetics, so we're really lucky to get some time with her to talk Theopoetics today, so thanks for being here, Carolina. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Tim. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, so when we get started, we usually just want to hear a little bit from our guests about their life. Uh, what formed you uh, to come to your poetic perspective? What has shaped you? What continues to move you in your work? So what conti- I'll answer that question first. What continues to move me in my work is this, uh, this digging deeper, this response to our times. Um, and just seeing the needs of my own personal healing and trauma, but it's sort of this intergenerational trauma 
and just learning more about what that looks like unfolded in the lives of myself, of generations, uh, future generations. And what propels me to keep digging deeper is really, I feel like it's spiritual activism. That's a term that I have um, taken from Gloria Anzaldúa. And that's what's situating me right now um, with propelling me forward. And also what brought me to this poetic space to writing poetry um, really is just life lessons, life skills. I remember as a little girl, I would write um, poems of the macabre. I was just so in love with gothic literature and anything that had to do with this sort of otherness because I felt that I was connected somehow to that and now of course we're connected to everything but um my poetry started evolving as I started reading more poetry and as I started to write more poetry um and just really just having relationships and conversations with other people that has also evolved. Not that I don't write about the macabre anymore, <laughs> but it's sort of an evolutionary process. So if you read my poems as a young girl and read them to now, it would be so completely different. And I'm so glad for that. I'm glad that my voice mm. has changed and continues to change because I think that people are a changing body politic we're, we're just changing creatures and it would be it would be a, a terrible disservice to readers and to myself if poetry wasn't constantly evolving um as i wish and hope for our um our state of being and our environment and our culture i hope that that continues to evolve as well yeah, uh, I think that notion of evolution is in the title of your collection of poems, uh, this notion of becoming. Uh, and that, that what I observe in some of your work is that there's this deepening or growing into a fuller identity um, through perhaps poetic expression, but, but also in your writing, there's this sense of place and culture or, or something through the mundane and the, the work of of the hands that becomes for you a sort of gateway in a sense to reflect on the deeper meanings and the deeper healing that are available. So um, could you describe a little bit how you continue to, to press into that in your own work and find healing and deepening and change and becoming in, in, uh, in the way that you write? Community is a huge, huge factor. Um, or element of what it is to continue to heal. And there are so many people doing this work, even though that language is not placed on, um, on their work. And so being able to, to continue to live out what my antepasados have shown me, what my maestras and maestros have shown me through their own work, um, is how I continue to heal, trying to find, and not find, but live into the voice of storyteller. As a kid, I grew up on nothing but stories. Um, my grandparents would always tell us stories of La Llorona or stories of La Lechuza. And, and I've grown to know that these 
stories were actually our way of survival. It was our way for not just only our culture not to die, but for us not to die, um, for us not to be sucked into the appropriation or into um, colonization as we have. We're active participants in that. And by we, I mean um, as a Tejana, United States-born um, woman, uh, who lives in a in a heterosexual relationship like we have actually yeah we have to recognize our privilege and how we've um continued to to contribute to to this colonization but so and i think that that's part of the healing process is to first engage with what it is that you are destroying because it is an active um it is an act of destruction, language, food, um, you know, ways of being, ways of living, medicine, all of that. I grew up, I never went to the doctor yeah. when I was a little girl. And um, I, as an adult now, I find that strange because my father passed away in the military when I was two years old. And so mm. I was covered under Chapter 35 and uh, for my tuition and covered under medical care until I turned 21 years old. And it's very, very strange to me that, that we just never went to the doctor because there was always a tea, um, a yerbita, a little herb that could totally cure what it is that was ailing us. And I took all of that for granted up to some point. Um, I still don't visit the doctor very often, but my children definitely do. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, um, healing is recognizing how I've contributed to breaking our story um, of finding a yerbita and growing a yerbita that could ail such. And I'm not saying mm -hmm. that medical and doctors and medicine is not um, is not good. It they're there's doctors for a reason, um, yeah. but a lot of that ancestral wisdom um, I've participated in in breaking that sort of um, story within us. So part of healing for me right now is recognizing all the ways that I have. Um, broken our story and then restoring that story again mm. and as my grandmother meets her final days um and she knows this i don't rob her of the dignity of her knowing that she is gonna go be with jesus as she says i don't want to take that dignity away there's something very ancestral uh, the ancestral wisdom in her, um, porque ella es India, for her to know in her bones that it is time for her to depart from the world. Um, and, you know, when a friend had asked me, uh, he had asked, uh, so is she, who, what terminal illness does she have? Or um, he asked, what, um, what did the doctors find? Did the doctors diagnose this? And he did not mean it in any way maliciously. He's a dear friend of mine. Yeah. But I, yeah, but I responded with, I don't want to rob my grandmother of her dignity of knowing her own body, right? And knowing yeah, that yeah. all of her years, she carries this wisdom that I don't want to rob her of if she knows that 
she's approaching final days or final months or final year or years. Um, I don't want to take that away from her. So that's also part of healing, right? Is mm. recognizing um, los antepasados and 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 do and doing due di- diligence to the dignity of bodies and of wisdom. And I think that's what would make me not a better storyteller, but what would make me the storyteller for our family. Because I think it's up to me now. Uh, I, I honestly feel that I've been gifted that um, it sounds so trite, but that God has gifted this, um, this manner of word, um, this trauma. Mm. And I have to, dig my way through it because no one else in my family is doing this work. Um, Mm -hmm. Although my community, there are so many doing this work. I could just, yeah, I could list them all out and take maybe a day or two to name them all. Right. But my community is doing this work, but my family is not. And so I think that that's a responsibility that I hold for healing, not only myself, but, you know, reaching back a couple of generations um, in order to pull back, um, pull forward and heal. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for um, connecting, you know, this healing work with family and with, with history and especially with story. I think, you know, one of the things I sense in the way that you use language to communicate via poetry and via some of your, your other writings is that it's almost as if story becomes a sort of container for spirit and, mm-hmm. and that there is, you know, when you're talking about this, um, this connection with your grandmother and this idea that, that as you take on the mantle of, of being the, the storyteller, that, that you're not only preserving, um, you know, the actual stories themselves, but somehow the spirit and the culture and the, the, the connection to ancestors that, that is a sort of wisdom that that transcends, you know, what might be sort of a Western, you know, colonizing rationalist form of wisdom, right? You know, you talked about, I think, that, that analogy with the doctors. And, and there's something there that speaks much larger as a metaphor for, for something much deeper, much more intrinsic that is being preserved in story. And, and I don't know how else to name that, perhaps, other than something like spirit. And I think that that in our time where we are being impoverished with a lack of soul. Um, mm. And I think that that comes from in part this, this inability for us to carry the spirit forward of, of our, of our stories. And so um, especially when it comes to healing work, I think that stories of people who have historically been marginalized by Anglo culture, you know, that, that speaks loud loudly i think to um hopefully the resistance to colonizing tendencies and so um i just so appreciate the way in which you hold that and and carry that forward through your poetic work and um you know i i think that it's healing for the world as well um if not only for you and your family and you know um and so i I just wanted to say thank you for that thank you tim oh you're very welcome so uh, so that being said, you have also this this connection with um, with God uh, that has come out in your you know theopoetical 
way of speaking. And I, I'm curious uh, because some of the ways that you phrased it at the Theopoetics Conference were so compelling. Um, and, and I'm just curious for you how this journey into poetry and storytelling has related to your theological journey in not only thinking about God, but feeling um, through God as, as you continue to live and move. So could you speak a moment for a moment about that? Absolutely. Um, I think it was Mary Rose O'Reilly in her, uh, the Peaceable Classroom, where she mentioned that she doesn't see art separated from the spiritual. So our art is not separate from God, because all of art is expressing some human condition. And you can't speak of the human condition without talking about God, even if it's not in that sort of language. And I think that my art, which is poetry and writing, causes me to deeply reflect on what God is, where God is, how God is. And I'm fascinated. I'm just, I, once I remove this Western way of thinking about God, which is incredibly ingrained into me, um, I find that the possibility to know God and to be with God is most alive when I'm creating art. And I don't know if it's like that for everyone. I not only write, but I do sketch and I do draw, um, which there's a poet in town, which I call him a Theo poet, but there's probably, I don't know if he identifies this way, but he's also our poet laureate, um, our San Antonio poet laureate, uh, Dr. Octavio Quintanilla. Um, he explores this sort of sketching and poetry at the same time. And that artwork just astounds me. Um, and although some would say that it's secular, it's because of the images. I would very much say that it's absolutely intrinsically interweaved with God and doing mm. God's work. Mm. Right. And so I'm more prayerful stepping back from that a little bit writing as prayer so when I think of writing as prayer I think of um I think of Dr. Quintanilla along with you know Irene Lara Silva um Edward Vidaudi like I just I can I can name so many names of people that are actually prayerfully living art living out artwork and so when I sit down to write and I sit down um to formulate words I think God is most alive in me at those moments because it is a sort of prayer. It's this struggle. It's this tension um, to know, do I have the right word? And usually that when that question comes up, it's quickly pushed out by, am I conveying the right feeling to how do I feel to what does this look like to a larger narrative? Um, how does this connect? with humanity how does this connect with the human condition and i don't know if that's a scholar voice talking or my academic voice but honestly <laughs> yeah. connecting with humanity is connecting with god so if your artwork if my artwork is connecting with another human being that is the work of god right that is and yeah. i'm not saying i'm god 
but God is alive in that transaction, right? In that sort mm. of process where we're creating. And it doesn't have to necessarily be poetry or art or painting, but this expression of humanity, right? It could be anything in which you're co-creating with someone and that co-creation is, uh, is transactional. Um, and I think God's spirit is so alive in that. And I love that in, in, in speaking about God and about reaching back and also being in tune to dreams and in tune to um, ancestors, um, in tune to what that all brings, I think all of that is a part of what God is. Um, and I try not to say who God is anymore because I feel like saying who automatically wants to assign some sort of gender for me that's how it feels right now yeah. so I try to say what um, because I also want to decolonize um, when we say what is God that we're not saying um, that God is a thing um, yeah I think we have to unpack the what as well um, but in everything even when when I feel that God is not near if I sit down to write I, I feel like God is within always. And yeah. I think that's a privilege, right? I think that's total privilege to be able even to sit down and write, um, but to feel God very near while doing art. I think that that's an absolute privilege. Mm. Mm. Thank you. That's yeah. I, I, I love the connection that you made between um, God as uh as creative expression in, in the sense that there, that there's a what that is participating um, in that creative process that, that is perhaps beyond a who or, or some kind of abstract naming that we might want to assign to it. Um, and it strikes me that part of the voice that comes out as you write in Attune to the Divine, uh, you've talked about it as uh, there's a resistance in the poetry to um, to different forms of, you know, um, colonialism. And you've, you've mentioned the phrase taking on the language of the oppressor to dismantle it also. Um, and that I, I think that there's something divine in that. Uh, and so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So could you, could you just maybe connect for a moment, uh, as we come to a close here in a few, just this idea of participating with the divine and expressing the depths of, of your becoming um, through poetry and how for you that is a form of resistance to colonizing tendencies. Sure. So I have to write in English to mm. reach a larger audience. Mm -hmm. When I sprinkle in Spanish, um, I'm engaging two cultures. When I engage in Nahuatl, which I'm learning, um, then that automatic, it comes I try not to appropriate the language. I'm, try, I'm trying to navigate that in-between space of appropriation and, um, and decolonization. It's a lot of internal work that goes on. And I'm trying to think more deeply about this because I speak in two oppressive languages, English and Spanish. Mm. What, I, what then happens is the entire visceral experience of writing poetry 
up to the calluses on the fingers and um, ink splotching on my fingers. Um, the blue, it doesn't come off for a couple of days. And I know that that's when I wrote this one certain word or this one phrase, or when I nearly fell asleep and it sort of rubbed on the edge of my palm. Um, all these transactions while I'm speaking in the language of oppression, right? Yeah. That, that, but that I am also engaging in a language that there are no words for. And I think often that's how I feel about God, that there's no language for that, yes. right? Yeah. While I'm writing, it's all the other things that are happening and not necessarily the words that are coming out, although those are absolutely important. But the body, my body posture, my sweating, my being at a table with a little bit of light, up to and my toddler, you know, in the background, up, up into just like the other night, a couple of gunshots down the street and you stop and the pin smudges. All mm. of these transactions um, are also where God is, where there is no language. And so that's why I keep writing in English and Spanish because it is it, it, they are the languages that I know, English being the one that I know more of now, even though when I was a little girl, I spoke red and, um, and, and wrote both languages. Um, so now as I'm trying to learn Nahuatl, it's sort of, um, it's also a very <laughs> visceral experience because of the way that you form words in your mouth and then mm. the way that come out onto the paper um, and how that translates down through the body, right? As you're writing these things. Um, yeah. I yeah. just feel, yeah, I feel <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think that that's beautifully said and uh, I'm struck by the holism of that process. Uh, the discipline of art making and being present to what's happening in your body and sur what's surrounding you. And as the words come feeling through that, um, that, that process of expression, I think, uh, I, I can hear the sort of attentiveness that, that you bring to cultivating and caring for those words as they come through you. So, uh, I, I think it's easy for us to, observe art from the outside and to, to, to just, you know, have a sort of subject object relationship with it where it becomes objectified. And I'm grateful that, that you're giving us something deeper and calling us to, I, I think, inhabit uh, a much more porous and relational space that, that actually allows for the feelings that you feel perhaps in expressing those words to affect us in, in an emotive way. And so, um, so, so yeah, I, I just think what a, what a beautiful gift, um, that you continue to, to give the world. So, uh, so I know that we've got to close here in a moment, but, um, I, I wish we had much more time to talk because I feel like there's so much to mine here. There's so much, um, that's very rich. So, um, 
thanks again for taking some time, but can you uh, tell our listeners where they can keep up with you and, and your work and, and how to stay in touch? Absolutely. Thank you. Um, you can currently not on Facebook very much uh, for writing and, and, and community health care. Um, so you can find me on Carolina Hinojosa Cisneros Writer. That's my Facebook page. But more presently, you'll find me on Twitter at Cisneros Cafe. And if I ever get my camera phone going again, you can find me on Instagram at Cisneros Cafe as well. Great. Well, I hope that everybody is able to check that out uh, and keep up with what you're doing because it's really, really beautiful. So thanks again for, for taking the time to be with us today. And thank you for your power and, and your beauty and um, your liberating spirit and, and that comes through not only in this conversation, but in your work. So um, I hope to connect again sometime soon and uh, keep the conversation going. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Carolina. We'll, we'll talk soon. The following segment was recorded live at the 2019 Theopoetics Conference, where Carolina accepted the Hubem Alves Award in Theopoetics. Here you can hear her reflections and comments after receiving the award, some live poetry readings from her most recent collection at the time, and her engagement with an audience question. Now, for those of you who were there in attendance, you may recall that there were more questions asked live than have actually made it onto the podcast. And that's for a couple of reasons. Firstly, the audio we captured live unfortunately did not have everyone's question recorded in it. And secondly, it was difficult for me to re-articulate some audience questions into the mic in the asker's own voice and tone. And so to honor and best represent the heart of those questions, one asked not to be included in the public recording itself. So we apologize if there was any value lost in not including them in the final recording, but we really hope that you do enjoy this excerpt from the 2019 Theopoetics Conference with the wonderful, gracious, and wise Catalina Hinojosa Cisneros. Wow. Who is blessed? I am standing in a room full of scholars, activists, poets, thinkers, educators, teachers, brilliance. I am surrounded by you, and I am incredibly grateful for your presence and for your work. So thank you. I'm going to read a couple of poems. I had this whole thing written out, right? Um, I left my journal on the airplane. It's okay. It's, it's funny how God, I call the universe God. Um, it's funny how God tells you something and you don't listen. And so God has to take, right, this very tangible thing that I was holding on to. Like, I can't let this go. My speech is right here. Uh, and it's not, it's because I was supposed to sit in communion with you. I was supposed to sit in your presence. And then I would know what to say. A word contains a universe, right? And so... I'm going to read from a book I titled Becoming Costotos, 
Costoto is Nahua, which is a Mexican indigenous language, and it means yellow bird, like a canary, but not a canary. And so I believe birds are our greatest storytellers. And I have found throughout my life this interweaving of pajaritos, of birds. And I have never quite made the connection or known why. Um, and within the past year, I completely understand now. And so I'm grateful to my before mothers, and I'm grateful to my ancestors for this word, costotot. I believe that language is incredibly powerful. It lends access. It takes away access. We're stripped of our indigenous tongues. We're stripped of languages that we have spoken. And we enter into the language of the oppressor. Right? And so I am named Carolina Hinojosa Cisneros. All Spanish. Very Spanish <laughs> name. Um, and with that, I'm trying to enter the academy right, so that I can decolonize these spaces where we've been ripped of language. But in order to enter that space, Bell Hooks quotes of Adrian Rich that we must take on the oppressor's language in order to go in and dismantle. So I'm going to read a poem, and then I'll talk more. When I imagine becoming a storyteller, I imagine that I'm becoming this bird. I have these constant visions of um, ripping out of a chest, not my own chest, just out of a chest. And I wonder, am I ripping out of God's chest, right? It's this very visceral, very bodily experience. Becoming. Costotot. Como pájara. Alumbrada, salgo de tu pecho, roto. Inlakesh is a Mayan um, word. It means you are my other me. Tú eres mi otro yo. So this next one is Inlakesh. It makes me think of my children. Mija, you are more than shared flesh. You are warrior at evening time. You are powerful voice at morning prayer. You are ancestral lucha, burning sage under your bare feet. Descalza, the earth ignites you into the day como águila, eagle spirit. Mija, you are of Madre Tierra. You are trenzas por la madrugada, Holy Spirit ribbon through each braid of charcoal. You are curious fingers through carrot strips, orange fire in your mouth, a dragon of giggles where I find God on a chipped tooth. There's, um, there have been so many people who have done this work before us, before me. Um, 
I love to uh, pay homage to Gloria Anzaldúa, who I believe is a Theo poet, great, incredible scholar. Um, Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz, self-taught poet, scholar, nun. All right, I'll read this other one. It's called Coitecan. So as I was speaking with um, Erica, we were talking about colonization and about claiming, reclaiming our indigeneity, not our, but like our indigeneity, and what that actually means for Tejanos. I am from Texas, from a long line of Tejanos, right? So that was Mexico before the border was drawn, and so we're still right there. And so the whole area is Cuauhteca, right? It's Cuauhteca, Tamaulipeño, but it is hard to claim or reclaim that indigeneity because I am both colonized and colonizer. Like that is within me, in my name, in my flesh, in me. So in order to honor that indigeneity within us and within me, I've titled the next one, Guauitecan. I am from the spring, from the grit in the nail bed of my mama grande's hands. I am from between syllables, American tongue can't unfold. Costotot. Yellow bird perched on willows that are despeinadas like me at two years old. Que nudo es este? I am from where Abuela slides her pinky finger through straight knots, caked into threads of hair, from rolling too many pink foam rollers. Because I wanted natural curls, not straight disasters, remolinos and tumbleweeds piled on my head like labor. But Abuela says, Es tu pelo liso, mi reina. Everyone wants your hair, como la sister Mary Alice. I am from the spring, from the straight hair, and none envy, from the grit of my before mothers. I believe that Nothing, we never get where we are without community, right? So without, without each other, this can't happen. So thank you to ARC. Thank you for the community that you all are building with each and every one of us. Thank you to Homeboy Industries. Thank you to everyone who is sharing this space together. Um, so for the next one, I want to invite community which I'm going to invite Yara. Jubem, Jubem Alves tells us that every poem is a testimony of this lost world. So this next one is dedicated to the mothers who've been ripped from their babies in La Cicatriz, in the borderland, in La Frontera. And I'll share it with Yara. It's called Blessed Be the Mother. Oh. 
on holy land between a mesquite shrub and a Mexican willow whose purple buds bow in adoration. A mother sets out on a pilgrimage, un peregrinaje en el camino de una santa tierra. She carries her child like women have always carried this world, ganchado, between the sacred bosom of life and the warrior thigh that crushes the serpent. Her talones kick up dirt, a holy danza, amid a swirling languid breeze on land which has been stolen from her. Chin held high, wings spread wide, she is the resistance. She knows what awaits her arrival at the border. El diablo anda suelto, ready to rip the world from her hips. But she knows where to hide the medicine, tucked be beneath her hijita's wings. Cucurucucu, paloma. Cucurucucu, no llores. As hijitos and hijitas sit in man-made cages, detentions they will call them, their wings carry los antepasados like rayos de luz within. And when the cage gets lonely, los antepasados remind hijitas and hijitos of the land they stand on, and they will hear, Cucurucucu, paloma, Cucurucucu, no llores. A mother's pilgrimage never ends. She journeys the many separations she's endured since giving birth to this world on holy land between a tent city in Tornillo and the lurking eyes of government institutions. She prays her rosary, beads she must recall by faith since their confiscation at port of entry. She remembers the medicine she hid in the wings of her hijitos and hijitas and she sings to herself, Cucurucucu, paloma, cucurucucu, no llores. Blessed be the mother who spreads her wings in resistance. Blessed be the mother who reclaims her land. Blessed be the mother who meets the devil nose to nose until her hijitas and hijitas are returned to her. Bendita sea la madre, on holy land between a mesquite shrub and a Mexican willow whose purple buds bow in adoration. A mother sets out on a pilgrimage, un peregrinaje en el camino de una santa tierra. Hubem also tells us that, or teaches us, I like to call him maestro teacher. I'm so grateful. I'm not in seminary. I'm just a voracious reader, and I am in love with theology, and I'm in love with how we all come to know God or how we all come to be 
with God, even if we don't call God God's self or God. I'm fascinated um, by us and by how we engage in that deeper conversation, which is theopoetics. Brilliant. So this next one is tough, and Maestro Jubem says, the mystery of God is the mystery of our own bodies. So this next one is titled, Self-Portrait as Bone. Broken in four places, at the joint where Ma comes home with another man desperate for the shade of a family tree. Under the marrow where my thighs welcomed a man I did not want. Between the cavity where Abuela pinched the eagle's beak and said, Te lo dije por andariega. In the cartilage where I am mother and stranger, both the same. That one is hard to write. I wrote that one in a uh, workshop with Lina Kalaf Tufaha, which is an amazing um, Arab-American woman. She is an incredible teacher. If you can ever look up her poetry, please do. This next one is very short. I wrote it in a fiction class. It's not fiction. <laughs> My professor, uh, Professor Nan Kuba, brilliant woman, um, she had us teach on, we had to use a book to teach a lesson, right? Because we're learning pedagogy in my graduate program. And um, I was like, okay, I picked the one about maps. There was no people of color to pick from, but I chose the one where the guy talked about map. the professor talked about maps. And I thought, I'm going to teach a class, and I'm going to decolonize the map. <laughs> it went well. <laughs> and then I wrote this very short poem. <laughs> Decolonial Cartography of the United States of America. I trace my fingers over the equator on the Mercator map. I recall the map America Invertida where the north is not pregnant with empire, where the south is barefoot queen. Thank you, fiction, when it propels you to write, not fiction. <laughs> so, uh, I could go on forever. I, I'm going to quote Azandua, and then I, I promise I'll, um, I'll be quiet. Um, okay, <laughs> so if you, you may know Gloria Anzaldúa because of Dr. Patrick Reyes, um, she wrote a book called Light in the Dark, Luz en lo Oscuro, and so as I engage in theopoetics, engage in this conversation, um, my whole world has changed, but not really, um, I have made connections to 
everywhere and everything that's doing theopoetics and what that looks like. And I want to do um, Chicana Theopoetics, Chicanex, Latinx Theopoetics. And that's how I want to enter the space into the academy. So I have been eating Gloria Alzaldúa's work. She says, the mind does not make things up. It just imagines what exists and tells the soul to remember. So for me, theopoetics is just re-remembering, reclaiming. You already know what you know, you know? You're just remembering. And if that looks like you need to be silent for a little while, if that looks like you need to um, protest, if that looks like you need to make art, you do, right? And that's how we engage with the divine. This is a, a, a prayer for you. I love also that Hubem Alves says that dreams are testimonies that the soul has not become an encaged bird. So this next one is called I Wish You. I wish you wholeness. I wish you life. I wish you the gift of daybreak where the sun kisses the horizon and never asks for anything in return. I wish you embers that burn tiny holes on your soul to let the light out. I wish you understanding in this body and in the next. I wish you a transformed life, a freedom uncaged, disruptive of the systemic oppression visible in the folds of your skin, on the lapel of your marginalized body. I wish you light on the trail under your bare feet. I wish you breath where you have been suffocated, ahogada, callada, excavada. I wish you vida abundante, medicina para tu corazón fiel. I wish loyalty to your hands as you navigate words and carry down history in the stream of your back, bone of my bone. I wish you ease when you masticate the gristle of family and faith. I'm going to read one more. Is that okay? Yeah? Okay. Thank you. But there's only 14 poems in it. Like. <laughs> um, I, so I guess uh, testimonio is a big deal, right? Like testimony is huge. It's storytelling is the way that we survive, right? It's the way that our people survive. It's the way that our... I mean, before the academy was built, it was story, right, from our mouths. And so that's a very visceral thing as well. Like, story comes out of your, out of this part of you, right? Um, and I hope that we remember that always as we share story with each other. So, I grew up on the south side of San Antonio. And so I'm a good shape shifter, right? That's what I call myself, a code switcher, a shape shifter. So if I'm in 
if, if I'm in class, I know how to act like methodologies and epistemologies and stuff. Um, and that's funny to me because I love language. But for a long time, I felt real stupid. You know, like there were certain words I didn't know. I went to school and some um, there was a, a woman next to me in undergrad and I remember her talking about canonical. She kept saying the canon and canonical this and canonical that. And I was like, what is she saying? What does that mean? Um, and they would throw it around like, and what is that? And what, what does that mean? For a long time, I didn't know what it means. And then I learned what it meant. And then I learned how to use it in a sentence. Um, and every time someone says a word, you'll see me with a pen. And I'm like, oh, what is that word? I'm going to go look it up later on. <laughs> I just, I'm obsessed, right? Um, but I find that that's the only way that I can break that down. And it took me a long time to graduate with my BA. A long time. Life, right? So I never thought I would go to grad school. Um, this little chicanita from the south side of San Antonio, right? Like, oh self-conscious and stuff about everything, everything. Um, I didn't think I'd ever make it, and my grad school said, yeah, come on, with your horrible GPA, <laughs> let's go. Because you're engaging in conversations, right, that are bigger than yourself. And because Our Lady of the Lake gave me a chance, all of a sudden I feel empowered, and I wonder, what does that do to our children? What does that do to our young people, right? So what I do is I go teach poetry in my community because I think poetry should be accessible. Um, and I think a lot of times they'll say, oh, here's a tool. We just gave that school 100 computers, right? But did you teach them how to use the computer? Did you teach them what programs are on the computer that they can use if this access goes somewhere else? You know what I mean? It's sort of like a little Band-Aid that goes on things. So I try as much as possible to teach poetry in my community. It's not as scary as you think it might be. Um, and that's how I lend myself. And I hope to always, even when it's crazy, y'all, like I'm going to apply to doctoral school. And I work hard. I work real hard. I have three kids. I'm married. I have a cat. He don't care. Uh, <laughs> it's tough. It's tough, right? Because you go home and your grandma's like, don't act all big. You're, mm -mm. You're not big, but can you make tortillas? <laughs> and for a long time, I thought that that was so, oh, grandma, you're being so oppressive. Like, oh, you just want me to make tortillas. It's not oppressive. Um, it's grandma reminding me, keeping me humble and reminding me home matters, right? Wherever that is, whoever that's with, whatever that's with, and we don't forget home, right? Um, so I love my grandma. And this last one is called, um, Holy is a Bird's Cry. Holy Spirit, can you hear? Ashes of my before mothers vacillate over my limp body. Temptation coils my throat, vexed desert 
sands, canyonous, treason is death's possibility. Mirage of doubt pesters like a fly buzzing at death. I hear Mary call my faith. I feel the Jesus of my mother cup the crane of my neck, close his eyes over the kettle, and blow medicine into the fold. He brings his mouth to speak, but I have already fluttered away. Thank you so much, everyone. I appreciate you very much. Thank you. Um, thank you. Yeah. Uh, so my name is Tim Burnett, and I host the Theopoetics podcast uh, that's sponsored by ARC. And so, uh, just so you know, we're going to do a little Q and R right now, um, and we're going to open it up for you all to ask questions. Uh, I want to remind us of our uh, questions for grounding that we've been talking about this weekend. Um, that we we hope that you will continue to carry those in your heart and mind as you as you speak and as you. You ask questions of Carolina, and so um, also this is going to be recorded for the podcast as well, and it'll be released uh, to listen to at a later date. But uh, so, so that's what's going on right now. We're going to take about 15 to 20 minutes if, if we can fill the time with all of the curiosity I'm sure that was sparked there um, with you all. So uh, if you would like to ask a question, you can just raise your hand and try to please project, and I'll repeat it probably in some form in the microphone, and then we'll just... We'll do it that way, and then we'll close in, in, in a while. Is that all right? Beautiful. Okay. Ah, this is good. Yes. Yeah, like, let's commune. So the question was around the creative process and um, how that excavation happens for you and how you move from imagination to expression. It's a great question. I'm a very curious person. Right, so if I see something, I have a question about it all the time. So, for example, there's a Starbucks cup underneath the camera right now. And so, like, the little band around it is probably um, cardboard. And so then I'll start to wonder or ask myself, this literally is the process. <laughs> I'll ask myself, where does the cardboard come from? What is it made of? Um, who made it? How did it get there? Um, what? How am I contributing to the environment or destroying the environment by using that if I throw it away? And then, I don't know, it goes in the trash. Like, I go through this whole thing in my head and it's quick. And so I'll have maybe a line or two and I'll write it down or just the idea. And then later on, it'll be something else like, it's seven o'clock, um, or it's almost seven o'clock, and then I'll think of a song. It's almost seven o'clock. That's not really a song, but so this is my creative process. I'm naturally just curious about everything, and I ask a ton of questions. And so I don't think that work is ever done. I'm going to be your English teacher now. Um, good writing is rewriting. Like 
it's never done. So there has, and, I, and I'll explain that the way the chat book came about is that my maestra, Irene Lara Silva, said, ma'am, when are you going to put your poems out there? Oh, no, you know, it's, it's all good. Um, they're already published on different places. They don't need to be in a book. She said, send it over to me. And this is where community comes in. She'll, she'll say, she said, send it to me. Let me look at it. And then you send it off. She had a few edits and it went off. Had she not nudged me and had I not had enough respect, because I respect her very much, to send that over, it would still be in limbo. I would still be writing, rewriting Blessed Be the Mother. I think it transformed like four or five times because mine is not the narrative of migration. Um, that's the narrative of my ancestors. And so there's a fine line that you walk when um, misappropriating or appropriating. And I wanted to be uh, certain and I wanted to be careful um, and I wanted to honor before appropriating. And so I needed to make sure that that was told um, in an honest way and not that I was co-opting that specific narrative. Yeah, I hope that answered your question. <laughs> okay. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Theopoetics Podcast. If you like what you heard here, you can log on to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform and subscribe and leave us a rating. You can also follow along with Catalina's work online, on her various social media platforms, or by grabbing her recent collection of poems, Becoming Costoto. You can also keep up with us on social media at at TheopoeticsCast, or tweet at me at at TDBurnett. Also, don't forget to get more information on the upcoming ARC Theopoetics Conference by heading to theopoeticsconference.org and using the discount code APOETICSOF for 10% off your registration. Thanks again also just for listening to this first season of the Theopoetics Podcast, and we so look forward to connecting with you all with some new episodes coming in the fall. Once again, I'm your host, Tim Burnett. Love wisdom, create beauty, and make peace, everyone. Mm-hmm.